Today, a psalm, another reminder of why we need our faith or hope most when we're least likely to have it, or that hope is strongest when it appears least grounded. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. In our journey through the Psalms, uh, we have arrived at Psalm 71. And so I want to share this Psalm with you. And we're we're coming to the end of book two of the Psalms, by the way. We're almost there. Uh, But I want to share this Psalm with you. And I I loved learning as I went through this Psalm. Every Psalm has been so much more distinct than I thought they were going to be from each other. This one is uh, no exception. And the core, the middle of this Psalm has a section uh, that just begs for us to understand uh, what David is communicating, what we should understand about our own faith as well. So what? I, so the way I want to approach this psalm is to read the beginning of it and then show you how it relates to the end of the psalm and then come back and talk about the middle of the psalm. So uh, it's 24 verses or so, and so it should uh, work out fine for us to do it this way. I'm checking down here to see. Yes, 24 verses. I know what I'm talking about. So we're starting out first section. Now, in the in the first section, it's actually the first couple of sections. There are uh, divisions of the psalm that are three verses each, but those six verses kind of go together. So the opening of the psalm is this way. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And this never, by the way, in verse one is very important. We'll come back to it. But in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. That continually is very similar. In, in, in Ideologically, it's very similar to what we were talking about with never being put to shame, which I may con- to, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me for you, are my rock and my fortress. Those are the first three verses. And so what he's doing is opening the whole psalm with the idea that he will not be put to shame and it's forever to always. Importantly, the forever, the to always kind of idea that's being communicated there isn't just an appeal to eternity. It's not just an appeal to the future. It's a statement about all the time in between. And so, you know, it's part of the reason the implication of using the language this way and describing forever this way is part of the reason that it's, I mean, it's from the perspective of David. It's him speaking, and it's part of the reason that uh, that, a, that a Jewish audience in reading the psalm could come to the conclusion that it's just about this life. It's not about a resurrection or something like that. Now, I disagree with that, obviously. I do think there's something beyond this life, 
But the implication is not so much about eternity as it is about constancy, just that there is, there will never be a lapse in God's provision of this. So he will never allow me to be put to shame is the idea. So uh, that's that's what he's opening with. We'll come back to more commentary about that in a moment. In verse 4, he goes on. This is sort of the second section of the psalm, but it works together with the first. So all this is one piece together. So rescue me, oh, oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. And this is partially making the point uh, that I want to, as we're talking through this in a moment, that, you know, he just said, you'll never let me be put to shame. And yet he's now saying, I need you to rescue me from the hand of the wicked, as if he's already in the hand of the wicked. Now, it certainly can be read to say, no, I'm not in the hand of the wicked. Rescue me from ever being in the hand of the wicked. That's fine. But the point is, he is in the place he doesn't want to be. And he needs God to rescue him from ever being in that place or from being there now. Rescue me, oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, oh Lord, are my hope, my trust, oh Lord, from my youth. We'll come back to the youth in a minute too. Upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. And that's an important concept that, again, will come up later in the psalm. I I didn't begin my faith consciously. I'm making choices, and now I have faith. I believe in making choices. I believe in making a decision to follow God, to choose Christ as your Lord, as he has brought us to repentance. I believe in all of that, so, you know, that's it. But it doesn't change the fact that my dependence on God is absolute, both for life itself and for the will that allows me to do anything or even to trust him. So upon you, I have leaned from before my birth when you were in your mother's womb. You weren't exactly figuring out how to get out. Uh, you know, some, you know, something else is going on, and the something else that's going on, David says, is, God, you were, you were taking care of me, so I just, I, I depended on you then. I guess I could depend on you now too, right? That's what he's saying. So upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. And again, using David's own language, you know, when he really wants to describe someone who is self-sufficiently evil, and you know what I mean? They're so they're so powerful, they just they abuse other people and they never answer to anyone, the way he describes them as uh, is as emerging from the womb already speaking lies. Uh, that they're already self-sufficient, that they already are willing to you know, do whatever. And so he's he's just saying the opposite. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. I could rely on you when I didn't have any choices about it. I rely on you now that I do. So my praise is continually of you. The continuity in all of this, I mean, it's obvious that that this is the point in verse one, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame. And then in verse six of the same section, upon you, I have leaned from, from, from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. You will not let me be put to shame always. And 
My praise is continually of you. And if you skip down to the end of the psalm, because as I mentioned, I want to put the, the beginning and end together. A lot of the psalms work this way. We would arrive at the end understanding now the things that are in the middle and have a more mature understanding of why this is the case. And that's what I want to happen in our way of thinking, so we'll do that. But I want to get to the end so that you can see how uh, this relates directly to what he's saying at the beginning of the psalm. So when we get to the end of the psalm, start, it starts in verse 22. It's just three verses. It says this, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. So again, appealing to this constancy that God has, that he is always available, always helping, always solving. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. And that's the language that's uh, going back to the beginning, not repeating the vocabulary, but the concept that it's constant. It's always going to be happening, but now it's not just God is rescuing me constantly. I can always depend on you. It's not that. It's me saying, and so I'm going to respond with praise all the day long because, and the last phrases of the psalm are these, and it's weird. You know, you want the psalm to be about God and praise and glory and hallelujah, happiness, and sing it in church. And you're saying the last words of the psalm are, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. But the point is that even while those were seeking to destroy him or to bring calamity, and in fact, uh, in the way the psalm is written, and you can, you can hear it in the English translation, they sought to do me hurt. They sought to bring about calamity. A psalm that begins with a direct reference to Yahweh, in you, Yahweh, I take refuge. It begins with Yahweh, ends with the word calamity. And what we're given in the psalm is instruction that we're to be as constant in our praise of God, our singing to him, our thanking him, our responding, you know, with the lyre and the harp and worship and so on. We're supposed to be as constant with that as he is to deliver us from all those who would take it away from us. This is the point. They can't take it from him. They can't take it from us. Now, how on earth do you tie those two things together in this psalm? And the reason this is such an important concept for us to deal with, so we're praising him all day long at the end of a psalm that begins by saying we find our refuge in him all day long. So always we are finding refuge in him, therefore all day long, we're offering our praise back to him. You can see why those two would relate. If the psalm were nothing more than those nine verses, that would be the point, and we would be done with it. What I find fascinating about this psalm is how much focus David puts on how extreme the pressures are for us not to do that, for us to stop praising God at times, for us to stop trusting God at times, and yet in those times have the greatest reason for offering him the praise. So when you put the beginning together with the end, what, what you're struck with is this reality in the Jewish faith and in the Christian faith 
and 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 obviously they're you know they're not just related. I mean they're directly related. They're intrinsically intertwined, no doubt about it. The point is that in the expression of it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a thread woven into everything about that faith that says there is going to be tension. There is going to be dissatisfaction. There is going to be suffering. It, it you you know how uh, we talk about Thomas Jefferson's Bible and how he took all the supernatural features out of it and talked about you know blah blah blah, and which is fine. I mean I I don't I'm not, I don't mean it's fine, but I mean that's Thomas Jefferson and history and a different story than the one I t- want to tell today. If you were to take the scriptures and try to read them as some optimistic blather about how we should all just see the sunny side of life. Let's just be optimistic and happy, everyone. I mean, people who are religious, they're just escaping from the realities of this world. If you wanted to try to take a pen knife, uh, you know, like Jehoiakim to to Scripture and say, I'm going to get rid of all the suffering parts. I'm going to get rid of all the parts where somebody's having to sacrifice to get to something or where somebody is mistreated, where somebody does something good and then they're abused for it. They actually lose because of what's happened. I'm going to cut all those parts out, and I'm just going to talk about the prosperity parts. And I'm not attacking the prosperity gospel or churches that advocate that. That's not my goal today. That's a different problem, and we can talk about that another day. I'm just saying, suppose we tried to cut out the really negative parts of Scripture. Eh, this is, we do this all the time. I mean, I was guilty of this in my very young ministry. I would open a psalm. You know, I would I, we would have church, and I'm you know I've been Baptist my whole life, so I don't have any liturgy. For me, the liturgical I mean, of course we all have liturgy, but you know what I mean. I mean the formal liturgy that goes with churches that are more committed to the liturgical cycle. The point is that I didn't have any knowledge of how to participate in that. And yet I wanted to add some elements to the service that, you know, lended some religious credibility to a 22-year-old up there yelling at college students. So we would read the Bible at the beginning and read it at the end, and the Psalms are the perfect place. Ooh, well, this sounds like it was just prepared for worship. Lo and behold, it was. And so I would open the Psalms, and I would read them, and and what do you do? You open the Psalm, and you pick it out, and you say, okay, I'm going to read this Psalm. Ooh, that's a that's got some really great language in it. Ooh, but then there's these bad people, and he's cutting them to pieces, or he's dashing babies' heads, and I don't want to read that part, you know, so I'm going to cut that out. Well, I didn't cut it out, but I didn't read it either. I read the Psalm as if it only said the happy things. And that's the same thing. If we tried to do that with all of Scripture, with practically any part of Scripture, we would end up with not. We would end up with shreds of a book. We would end up with not. We would end up with one comic book page worth of material, and that would be it. And it would be a comic book because it would not in any way reflect what Scripture actually talks about. There is in all of Scripture and in all of the nature of legitimate, and I mean it when I say that word, legitimate Jewish and Christian faith, a thread of tension and dissatisfaction and suffering that cannot be extracted from the nature of the material without losing the entire garment. It is the tension of you know, what we're asking when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not a weird question in Scripture. That's the question in Scripture. One good person after another suffers unbelievably 
and we're not and we're not given it in scripture like, oh well, yeah, that was weird. Man, that one poor person. When we read Job and we think it's unusual, it's because we're just not reading the rest of the stories. Why, you know, when we ask the question, why would a good and omnipotent God allow evil in the world? As as if we're creating some brilliant observation about the universe, which it is an incredibly important observation about the universe. I'm always happy to speak about that topic, and I value the question. I'm not mocking those who ask it. I'm making fun of the fact that we think we've come up with some brilliant question. That's the reason Scripture is written, to expose the reality of the need for that question. Here's your God. Here's your world. Something is wrong, catastrophically wrong, and deserves 1,189 chapters of being addressed, which he gives it. Or if we said beyond those, if we just said, oh, yeah, why is there, both of those are just, you know, why is there evil in the world? If we ask beyond that, well, I can't, so let's say evil snuck in for a minute and then God squashed it. We'd all feel pretty comfortable with that. This has not been a minute. We're not talking about a little bit of suffering. We're talking about genocides and holocausts. A woman was sitting with our small group last night and mentioned that she was Armenian. And it was like, are you you like your family was from Armenia? Were they there at the beginning of the 20th century? She said, yeah, during the killings, they were there. I mean, genocides and holocausts and horrors have not dotted the landscape of human history. They permeate the landscape of human history. Why have those questions, why would this happen? Why have those remained unanswered for so long? Those, the the things I'm saying right now, they're not unusual. Those are built into all of Scripture and, and the Psalms themselves. Why should we then... And this is a legitimate question, and David's addressing it here. Why on earth then? And this is the point, to to give, to at least address these questions. Not to give an answer that says, oh, I've solved the problem for you. But to give an answer that says, here's how you live in the midst of this. Why on earth would we give thanks for things that are terrible? Because we are commanded to give thanks all the time, and then we're told, all the time, this evil is still going to be permeating the world. Why, then, would we say good things about God when the evidence is not all of his goodness? There is something awry. There's a tension present. And, uh, you know, it, it is irony. Normally, we think of irony as somehow leading to humor or something like that because irony does create humor but it's just the tension between the way we know we ought to expect things to be when an almighty God can just speak creation into existence and then the reality of experiencing the world in a way that looks so not chaotic. We recognize that things are wrong, but that they're wrong. Why would it be wrong? And why on earth would I find peace or contentment of any kind in that. The beginning and end of this psalm are, are, are putting the whole psalm in the context of that tension by saying, I am constantly having to find my refuge in you. And by the end saying, 
And every day, all day long, I'm still able to praise you. I'm still able to draw attention to those who don't know you so they would know to worship you. Why on earth would he be able to say that? And so we read the rest of the psalm to understand that. So now we pick up in verse 7. So again, we've read the beginning and end of the psalm. Now we're going to take the middle. It's, it sort of comes in two parts. It's three parts, three sections of five verses each. But the first 10 of these verses uh, kind of all work together, verses 7 through 16. And this has to do with the way people perceive David and what they think they're getting from him and what they really ought to see in David, what they ought to understand about him. So this has to do with the leader, the Messiah, you know, what what people think is true about him and what's actually true about him. So starting in verse 7, this is how it says it. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. That's that's an odd line, right? I mean, this is not a that's this is not an everyday expression. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. What? You know, I've been some kind of sign to people. What kind of sign are you talking about? I'll tell you in just a second. We'll look at it. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. These five verses go, all go together. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is past. You heard what he said there. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of my old age. Remember, he's already brought up his youth, his childhood. He said, before I was even born, I knew to lean on you. So he's bringing up his age again. Now he says, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together, and they say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. And what we started with was other people looking at him. This is These are these five verses that go together. What we started at in this section was people looking at David and saying, oh, man, that's strength. Now, there's a powerful man. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, whoo, that man can kill tens of thousands. That man has power. I have been as a portent to many. They have seen me as a sign that God is going to bless them. They have seen me as the sign that things can be made right in this world. They've seen me as the harbinger of blessing and goodness. But he says at the end of that verse, this is the beginning of the verse, I've been as a portent to many, but you are my strong, and then he goes back to the first six verses, refuge. You're the one who was sheltering me. I mean, they looked at Goliath and thought, oh man, that guy can tear bears and lions from limb to limb with his bare hands. We can count on him. And he was powerful. He was a powerful soldier. The telling of these stories, like he's some weakling that's gone out to fight against Goliath or just complete misnomers. The whole point is that he's already killed these wild animals on his own out defending his father's sheep. He knows how to be a warrior. He can whoop everybody. He's he's tough. And yet, it's not his strength or his toughness that gives him a victory over Goliath. I mean, his skill with the sling and the stone worked. He killed him. 
But David knows it wouldn't matter what kind of sling or stone or power he had if he couldn't find refuge in Yahweh. And that's what he declares on the battlefield that day. So he says, everybody looks at me and says, oh, there's our hope. There's our our future. There's our sign that we're going to win and that God is going to bless us. But that's not true. You, Yahweh, you are my strong refuge. My mouth, that's why my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. And that's why when people are saying, oh, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him, they're saying that when they see his strength spent. That's the middle of the, this section. Don't cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. They saw him when he was powerful, and they said, oh, man, his power is where we had hope. And so when he became weak, they said, ah, we can take him now. We can take him down and take his position of power. It's like a wolf pack where the one powerful wolf leads all the others until he's weaker, and then they kill him. I don't know if that's true about wolves or not. I'm not like a biological expert. Daisy's nodding her head, though. She's confident it's the case. And she's from Oregon. She's bound to know. Okay, so anyway, the point is, but, but I know other species do that. I mean, they will destroy whoever the alpha is as soon as he's not as powerful. That's what they think they're going to do to David because they think that it was in his strength that these things were happening. But he knows all he was doing was finding his refuge in God. And so if you, if you look at the, just those five verses, before you get to the next section, just in those five verses, you have him saying, people thought I was powerful and they were going to find their refuge in me. So when I'm weak now and old, they're thinking, oh, cast him aside. He's no use to us anymore. But they don't realize that you're just as powerful as you've always been. And so I can still find my refuge in you. That faith, that dependency is what this is all about. His apparent strength wasn't his strength. It was his dependence on God. So when he becomes vulnerable, where does his dependence on God go? Up, not down. (laughs) The weaker he is, the more faith he has to rely on, the more dependence he has on God's power. And when God's power is where all of his power was coming from to begin with, It's just not a bad place to be. And so that's what he's saying. They're saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. But he says in verse 12, in greater dependence now, greater faith, O God, be not far from me. We're going to carry that image forward to the next section. I'll come back to it. Be not far from me. Now, we all know this is accommodation language. God is omnipresent. It's not like God is some places, and he's not other places. We know that, but our experience is of God's presence and absence, of God's power and the dearth of it. We experience life that way. That's the reality of how we live. And so David speaks to that reality. Oh, God, be not far from me. God doesn't interrupt the psalm and say, well, that's stupid. I'm always there. I'm just mingled among you no matter what. He's answering this prayer of a person who doesn't want to be in a place where he can't experience God's presence. And yeah, it's subjective. It's experiential. But it's real as well because that reality of where we live from day to day includes whether we are aware of God's presence and experiencing. Anyway, oh God, be not far from me, oh my God. 
Make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, back to the constancy, continually, and will praise you yet more and more. They will increase. As my weakness is greater and my vulnerability is greater, my dependency is greater, and so I will hope more and praise more because of your righteous acts. In verse 15, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day for their number It's past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them, and this is how you know this whole section was just geared to what he was saying in verse 7. In verse 7, remember, I've been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. When he ends the section in verse 16, he says, with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. That is, when I come to worship, when I come to tell people what you've been doing, I'm going to tell them only about you. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness and yours alone. It is always about you, and it has always been about you. That's what he says. The challenge here, you know, just think, this is David. So David, you know, he has his prideful moments. David has his moments of consuming other human beings out of his own interest and because of his own power. So he has he has all those failures, but he repents of them. He confesses them. God confronts him with them. And I'm not saying, oh, that makes it all okay. It just, it points out that the dependency that he has on God is the only thing that makes him so distinct. And yet we still want to do studies on the character of David and how his leadership is something that ought to be blah, blah, blah. The challenge, you know, so we, we can acknowledge pretty readily this, the, the, the challenge that's, um, that's, that's, that's there for all of us because we're just proud. And we don't want other, we don't want to rely on other people and we don't want to rely on the mercy of God. We want to be able to accomplish things on our own. That's just our nature. We want to depend on our strength and therefore be able to hold our head high and say, I did that right and I won this, you know, whatever. Even even people who are in ministry are that way. I spoke with somebody not long ago and they had been given a vehicle, a car. We had this whole conversation. So I'm not speaking out of turn. I'm not, not going to say who it is. If you're listening and it's you, you don't have to worry about it. Somebody had given them a car, and they just said that, that this is not comfortable for me. I don't, I don't like this. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're used to making our own way. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's pride. I, and I get it. I know the feeling. I, we all have that feeling. But you, you, I hope you will be able simply to say, Thank you. Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, And I appreciate that. And it's really hard to be a Christian leader and not learn to be that way. Not because people give you so many things. Sometimes people do and sometimes people don't. But because pride, it's not supposed to have a place in the way we live among ourselves. that, That challenge is always there. And we've talked about that many times. That's not this. That's not this issue. This And that's in contrast to what it would be for us to be dependent on God, have faith in God. That's not what David is talking about here. It's not, oh, I was afraid I was going to depend on myself. It's not about what he thought about himself. 
He's talking about the parts where he knew he was dependent on God's strength. It's what the other people thought about him. So in addition to our own pride and our dependence on our own strength is the allure in Christian circles of the celebrity of leadership and all of that. And I know it's kind of popular to bash this right now and talk about it. I get that. But it's legitimate, and it's a concern we ought to have. I think it's weird how much focus we put on the the, the power of leadership and leadership skills, and it's all about leadership. And uh, if you can just learn to be a leader like I am, then you can lead a ministry like I do. And you can tell. I mean, I just think that it's not it, – look, a lot of the people who talk about these things – and who teach leadership skills are great people and humble people, and what they teach is humility. So I'm not I'm not criticizing a particular person here, but I am saying, and I know I'm around this all the time, oh, that, that's great leadership. Now, I, we just need to learn leadership skills, so we're going to learn all about leadership and go to leadership seminars and figure out leadership, because if you've got the skills that person has, you can do something. Many people thought that that leader was a portent, Oh, if we had his personality, if we had his skills, if we had her ability to reason through things, man, we could have the same kind of ministry they have. And they didn't understand at all where the blessings from God come. And maybe the blessings of that ministry came from that leader's skills. (laughs) But that's not what we want. What we want is legitimate Christian ministry. I mean, you can't you can't study John the Baptist and say, wow, if we could all just be, if we could all just have the leadership skills of John the Baptist. You know, say it, say it to make everybody mad, say it till you go to jail, and then say it to the person who put you in jail so that they kill you. Now you're good and dead and you don't have influence on anybody. Man, talk about a wasted ministry. Well, it's the opposite of that, obviously. It's the the, the greatest ministry next to Jesus, as Jesus describes it. And it's not because he was powerful. I mean, you could say the nature of his ministry involved inherent courage, but his courage involved inherent fear. You can't be courageous unless you are afraid. You know, being stupid is not the same thing as being courageous. Standing at the top of a mountain and saying, I think I can jump off this thing and it'll be fine. That doesn't make you courageous. That makes you stupid. If a person says, man, this this is going to be dangerous. I'm terrified. I don't know if I can survive this. Please take this cup away from me. Then they have to be courageous. It's a completely different thing. And John the Baptist confronting Herod while he's saying to Jesus, now we sure about this? Are you sure you're the one? I mean, I'm in prison. Is this worthwhile? And then saying, but Herod, it is not right for you to do that. And losing his head over it, that's courage. That's what Christian leadership is about. That's what Christian ministry is about, that kind of service to the truth. Vulnerability. (laughs) I mean, uh, in in our church, Lake Highlands Baptist Church right now, uh, I'm getting to sit in church for a couple of weeks after I've done this uh, interim, and I have this brief time when I get to sit in the pew and listen to some really fantastic preaching and it's on Esther right now. And as our pastor, Bill, Bill Watson, is going through the book of Esther, 
Uh, he got to chapter four this week, and that's where Esther is being confronted with the need to go to uh, the king and you know plead on behalf of the Jews. And Esther's not saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. He's not going to say no to me. I can do anything. I'll walk in there and and I'll do, you know, I'll be like Salome. I'll, I'm bound to get whatever I want. He, she doesn't do that at all. She knows how vulnerable she is. And if I walk in and he just doesn't do anything, if he just doesn't do anything, I'll be executed. He has to choose actively to accept. She knows how vulnerable she is. And yet her resolve is to be able to say, but I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. That's vulnerability. Christian ministry is about vulnerability. Christians who really are used by God to do what he cares about in this world make themselves vulnerable. In our small group, we're studying Daniel as we read through the book of Daniel. And we did the, you know, the super popular VBS story, which is way better than a VBS story. I mean, that's, I'm not trying to slight VBS, but I just did. So we'll recover from that another day. Don't have time today. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know. Hey, king, you don't have to name all the instruments one more time. Just know that we're not going to bow down. Well, then you're going in the fire. Well, okay. And our God's able to deliver us, but he may not. But we'd rather worship a God who's able to deliver us and doesn't than bow down to you. We're vulnerable, but we're going to be faithful. Vulnerability, humility. You know, when David himself, the person who wrote this psalm, is leaving Jerusalem and Shimei is throwing rocks at him and saying, you ought to be ashamed. You ought to be leaving Jerusalem. It's my family, Saul's family, that ought to be blessed. When he's hearing all of that while he's being chased away from his own throne, surrounded by soldiers who could kill Shimei in a heartbeat and want to, by the way, David says, let the man throw his rocks. This kind of humility is just where we ought to be. If God is willing to drive me out of Jerusalem, what do I care if a man is throwing rocks at me? This idea that we have to be powerful so people can find their security in us is just not how Christianity or Judaism portrays being like Christ or being Christian in this case. And so I'm talking about those of us who follow Christ. It is instead in our dependence on him. You are my refuge all the time. So when I come to the people of God, I'm going to come to them with telling of your deeds, and I'm going to remind them of your righteousness and yours alone, and that's all they're going to find in me. Well, I depended on God, and he did it. So now here, this, this last section that we're going to talk about, it's just five, five verses. This is the great tension in the psalm. Oh God, verse 17, oh God, from my youth. Okay, so immediately we're beginning with the expectation because the more psalms you read and the more scripture you read, the more you begin to expect merisms, the more you begin to expect, if he talks about youth here, probably going to talk about old age in a minute, right? And so I'm reading this psalm for the first time, studying it. I'm not, you know, of course, I've read it a hundred times before, just like you when you read through scripture. But I mean, in studying it this time, I'm reading it fresh. 
I get to verse 17, and my mind is anticipating, well, where is he going to bring up old age? It's bound to come up. He's mentioned it in the psalm before, so it's not surprising that he's going to bring it back, right? So, oh God, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And because we've read enough Psalms to this point to know David's lingo, I mean, he's, I know what he's saying is you and you know, even anticipating Psalm 139, which we talked about not that long ago in an episode, didn't we bring it up? Yeah, there. So I know that what he's talking about is you brought me out up from the ground. You created us from the dust of the earth. So you raised us up from the dust. And in our youth, you taught us to proclaim your wondrous deeds. So while we were right next to the ground and emerging from the ground. This is the opposite of Wordsworth. You know, uh, Wordsworth's ode uh, intimations to immortality, uh, something like that. His, in that poem, he describes our souls trailing down from heaven, you know, and bringing uh, basically heaven behind us. And then the longer we live, the more distant we are from God's presence. This is kind of the opposite of that. I was dirt, and you created me from that dirt. And you taught me in my youth when I knew nothing, when I knew nothing. I had leaned on you in the womb because I didn't have any choice. I didn't know anything. And in that ignorance, you began to teach me as distant from you as I could be because, and this is where my mind was going while I was reading 17 and 18, and it's I'm telling you this part because You know, sometimes when you're reading, you anticipate and you go the wrong direction and you fix it. Other times you're reading and you anticipate and it blends perfectly into what's actually coming. And then you know, oh, I've got the the sense. I've got the sense of where this author was going. And that's what was happening here. And in hearing this, I'm hearing, oh, well, you know, David's way of thinking, I would think would be saying, so while I was just emerging from the ground, you were already showing me the wonders of heaven. You were already showing me these glorious transcendent truths about you when I was just emerging from being a piece of dirt. And as I return to that dust, as I return to the dirt, as I go back to the grave, and this is the language that he uses repeatedly, we emerge from the earth, we return to the earth. In, in my returning to the earth, I'm, I'm so close to the ground again, God. I can't stand up with the strength that I had in the might of my middle years. Now I'm returning to the dust. In this, even in my old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. And this is why I know he's talking about going to the grave. He's not just talking about his old age. He's talking about approaching the grave because he's saying, don't forsake me until I have time to tell the next generation so they can carry forward this truth about you, this knowledge about you, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. And then he repeats the merism, but without the reference to youth and old age, to make the point and to introduce something that, I mean, it's the whole point of this psalm. I think it's the whole uh, emphasis of the psalm in verse 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. It is exalted, right? That's the idea. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who's like you? That's where you are, way, way, way up there. 
you have made me see many troubles and calamities. But listen to what he says with it. But you who have made me see those many troubles and calamities will revive me again. I'm thinking to myself, I mean, that's resurrection language, you know, like, yeah, I'm going down to the grave, but he's going to bring me up from the grave. And it doesn't matter if it's about eternity or not. Again, the psalm doesn't have to be about that. This is David saying, when I am in the ground, you're not finished with me. And in the experience of David, that would mean in my old age, while I am decrepit, I can't, I don't have any power left. But I do think it goes beyond that. And I would be saying the revive me again could be talking about the resurrection. doesn't matter. The point is, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is obviously a repeat of the same imagery. I am so far from God in these moments. Be not far from me. Remember how he says it? I am so far from God. I am in the dirt. Where's his righteousness? In the heavens. I mean, it is in the heavens. It is as far away as I can imagine. And yet here, his righteousness from the heaven will revive me again. And if you think, I don't know if all that's there, the rest of the verse makes the point. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So that in verses 17 and 18, you have the merism of youth and old age growing out of the ground as youth and returning to the ground as elders. And in verses 19 and 20, you have the merism of the height of the heavens all the way down to the depth of the earth. The height of the heavens about the transcendent God in verse 19. But in verse 20, the depths of the earth causing troubles, but also the resurrection that comes from them. All of that makes this point, this lesson, that is the whole reason I think we're given this psalm. Because the patterns, not just in this case, but constantly throughout Scripture, but so beautifully revealed in the contrasts here between youth and old age, and in those moments of youth and old age, experiencing the power of God and the heights of the heaven being so far from the depths of the earth, and yet when we're closest to the earth, experiencing the height of God's power and his redemptive action in our lives. The patterns imply that the further we seem to be from God's presence, the nearer we are to experiencing his power. We don't like it this way, but this is the whole thing that makes it so beautiful. When Moses and Israel are at the Red Sea and Egypt is about to destroy them and they have nowhere to go and they're panicked and destitute, in that moment, they don't, they cannot possibly imagine that God is going to show up and do anything for it. He is so far away, they are ready to reject Moses and go back to Egypt. At least there, we had the basic things that we needed. And it's there that God shows up in his power to part the Red Sea in one of the two great miracles of the Old Testament. And, and in fact, in the other one, the same way. Elijah on Mount Carmel, before and after, experiences the destitution of being isolated from God and his people. 
only to see this great miracle of fire falling from heaven. Even, and I'm saying the part about it being after because I'm not just saying in moments of despair, God suddenly shows up and rescues us. The contrast is constant. After God's power shows up from the heavens, Elijah goes and sits down under that juniper tree and in despair says, God, take my life. I am no better than the prophets who came before me. When, when, when we seem to be furthest from God's presence, we are in this pattern nearer to experiencing his power. And the example, obviously, Jesus and his reference to Psalm 22. I mean, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Followed by what? (laughs) I mean, it's the miracle. It's the resurrection. So I'll put it in terms of what I hope it does for me. The next time I am embarrassed or humiliated or at a loss for an explanation or without a solution for some problem, I hope I remember that in that state, so distant from God's appearance, I am in the best place I could hope for God's power to show up and do something unexpected, unmerited, incomparable. And the way I'm going to try to get there in it's not in that moment, like this is like the reality that I don't have ethics so that in the moment I can emerge with some good idea about what to do. Ethics is something you learn when everything's calm so that in the crisis you can do the right thing. In that same way, in these moments when things are calm, I want to recount all the ways God has already made obvious that my beginning and end my heights and depths have always belonged to him. And by remembering him constantly in the middle where I am now, I hope with David to remember him in the extremes so that I am able to live in peace and contentment and gratitude always, every single day. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.